Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and joining me today is Marshall James, a Los Angeles-based activist and a congressional liaison for Citizens Climate Lobby. Marshall, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, David. So you and I met at a, is it a monthly meetup or a monthly meeting for a local Citizens Climate Lobby chapter? Yes. Yeah. A couple of years ago. And, you know, I attended this meeting because I was interested in learning more about the organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, one of the leading groups uh, pushing legislation to address climate change. And Marshall, you were at the meeting and early on, I felt like other people in the group turned to you as sort of a seasoned expert on the issues. And it was like, well, ask Marshall, he knows, you know, what they're talking about. And so I spoke to you a little later and then we got coffee and I thought you had been a political activist for years. And I was shocked to learn that you had sort of recently, within a matter of months, gotten involved and you were already so involved in citizens' climate lobby and other causes. I just wanted to learn more and I thought our listeners would be interested in learning more about kind of your journey from someone who wasn't very politically active to someone who it's a big part of your life now. Um, So take me back kind of before we met and I think before the 2016 election and tell me about what your level of political interest and engagement was uh, before you really first got involved with campaigns. Uh, yeah. So before the 2016 election, um, my political involvement, like I'd, I've always been someone who, who follows politics. Um, I did like student government in college and, uh, but it wasn't until, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders really kind of, you know, blossomed onto the national stage in the 2016 election that I felt, uh, really called to political action. Um, you know, I've been really excited uh, for President Obama, and I, you know, I was filled with the hope that uh, that things could change in the United States. Um, and then um, seeing the backlash to his seeming decency uh, made me really wonder, like, oh, I guess we have to really get involved. Uh, and then when Bernie Sanders ran, I think it was the first time I'd ever heard a politician say things that I wanted them to say and sound like they meaned it. Was there anything specific about his campaign or like his, I guess, his stances or policy positions that you were thinking, yes, this is like, this is what I want a politician to be talking about and I haven't heard others doing it? I, I think it's that... Like our American politics are incredibly corrupt, as I'm, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you. Uh, <laughs> we we have legalized bribery in this country. It is so patently true that I, to the point where I think most of the reason why Americans who don't engage with politics, I think a lot of us don't engage because it's so obviously a corrupt game. Uh, people are influence peddling all over the place. And Bernie Sanders just called it like it is. He called out that everything is corrupt. There's, you know, there's influence peddling all over the place. The political class in this country is very little concerned with the day-to-day concerns of working people. Uh, They're playing a completely different game than the rest of us. And so to hear a politician call out the political class like that really excited me. And then to hear him talk about 
uh, how the United States really needs to adopt the very moderate, normal practices of a functioning democracy in other countries, such as universal health care, universal guaranteed college, and universal paid, you know, vacations and sick leaves and all the sorts of benefits that comes with prosperity that are enjoyed in so many European countries and places like Japan. It, it made me kind of, it filled me with like a hopeful, righteous anger at the state of, you know, American corpocracy. And so I started getting involved in uh, organizing for Bernie Sanders here in Los Angeles I just found him incredibly inspirational, and obviously, I was uh, upset when he when he didn't win. Um, but even more upset when Donald Trump won the uh, nomination for the Republican Party, and uh, then when, as I'm sure everybody was very surprised when he won, uh, that's when I was like, "Why? Well, I, I have I can't just stop." with this organizing I did for Bernie Sanders, I have to get involved. President Obama had created a website, uh, or I don't know if maybe it was just the office of the president created a website, but it was it was a database of volunteer organizations where you could set out what you were interested in doing and it could put you in contact with a local group. And so I've always been very passionate about the environment. I feel like uh, a lot of people in our uh, generation, kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of uh, save the environment, save the rainforest, save the whales in our like media. And so I've, I've always been drawn to that. And the one of the first and best or- organized organizations I came across was Citizens Climate Lobby. So it sounds like you were politically interested, you know, even before you got active um, but Sanders' campaign is what activated you, mm-hmm. and I think for a lot of people, they care about like an issue or a candidate or support a cause, but they don't take the step of actually, okay, I'm going to go down to the local office or I'm going to get involved. Was there any moment or any specific, I guess, a reason that you felt this time you were going to like actually join the campaign and become an organizer? Yeah, Bernie Sanders gave a big speech uh, here in Los Angeles uh, in the fall of 2015. And up until that time, like I'd been aware of him, but uh, had not been a close follower of his. And I went with a group of friends and it was honestly the most inspiring uh, moment in my entire political life. Um you know, this was the the beginning of people finding out about Bernie Sanders and the, the exciting and blunt way he talked. And I was energized. The energy in that stadium was so palpable. There was so much excitement. There was so much belief that we could do something, that we could break this pattern of some rich person becoming, you know, one rich person after another, always being the leader, always doesn't matter what political party they are, they're always passing benefits on to other rich people and ignoring the poor folks. And uh, it was at that moment that, um, you know, they they had people signing up volunteers. And so I, I signed up. And initially, it started off just doing, you know, a simple, like I tried phone banking and uh, some text banking and 
letter writing and a little bit of hosting, you know, informational meetings and that sort of thing. So I, I'd say the the part that really got me to do it is just hearing him speak and then having someone put a clipboard under my hand <laughs> to sign up. Yeah, I mean, being there and asking people to sign up in the moment is a good way to get people involved. Um, and so it sounds like you tried a few different things at first, like the text banking, letters, phone banking. And I think it's always a uh, you know interesting to see because once people are organized or activated, that's a great start. But then if they don't have a positive experience, they might not keep doing it. So did you have a positive experience with the things that you tried? Were there things that you didn't like doing so much or things that you did like doing? What made you keep going? Because for a lot of people, you know, they may, I could see how they would get tired of text banking or not sure that they're making an impact. Yeah, I I found that uh, that specific indirect outreach, I, I didn't very much enjoy, I especially didn't quite enjoy phone banking because phone banking is basically telemarketing for politicians, which are like two <laughs> things people hate combined. Uh, and so it doesn't matter who you're talking to, they don't want to talk to someone who interrupted their day to talk about politics. Um, but I, I think it's really, it speaks to the power of a inspirational individual to drive people. I think I found um, Bernie and his message so inspirational that, okay, maybe I don't like phone banking. I will try text banking instead. And I found text banking to be easier because it's less less direct, less personal. You just are sending texts to people. But then I wanted to feel more involved, be more involved. I did door-to-door stuff. I did organizing um, with just volunteers around town so that we could get people out at marches and get people out at speeches. And I found that going into the community and interacting directly with people was something that I felt much more comfortable and much more drawn to. Um, and, and so that's what I ended up settling on. But, you know, my, my level of participation waffled a bit during that, uh, during that election, I think there are some people who have this idea that like, once you're a volunteer, you have to be on, 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 on. And, you know, you're a volunteer, you know, you're not getting paid. So you can take your, your time if you need, you know, I had a lot of work stuff came up. So I, you know, took a break from it and then I got back into it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh no, that's, you make good points. You remind me, I was in uh, New Hampshire for the presidential primary and I volunteered with the Clinton campaign, though I, you know, I supported Sanders as well. It was, I had a connection with the Clinton campaign. So I mm-hmm. went out to New Hampshire and I'd always wanted to see what the primary was like. And, you know, the primary thing they have volunteers do is door knocking and phone banking. And with the phone banking and the little computer program, it showed like a record of how many times people had called that house already and what the outcomes were. And to be honest, when I looked at it, I felt a li- I felt useless or a little disgusted because in New Hampshire, some of these voters get called 40 times, you know, between oh, the yeah. start of the campaign and the end of the primary and I I couldn't help but think is my 43rd phone call to this voter really the one that's going to make the difference? Like isn't this much more annoying than helpful? 
to the campaign at this point. And I'm sure the data shows it's moderately, you know, tiny percentage bump helpful. But like you, I think the more rewarding things are the more difficult things. Uh, the harder it is to do, the more impact it makes. And the in-person conversations are a lot more rewarding and helpful than the kind of impersonal political telemarketing. Yeah. Um, so even though the Sanders campaign ultimately wasn't successful, you kind of continued along and found another cause or another group you were alluding to in Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, and so was that because of Trump's election, you were upset and made sure you wanted to keep going? Or how did you, you know, decide to get involved with Citizens Climate Lobby and stay active after the 2016 election? Yeah, I I think it was a combination of, you know, my political spirit was really woken up by Bernie Sanders. And I think, you know, that was that was the age of when like social media as a political tool really came into its own. And so I was engaging a lot in political discussions and arguments on online, but also sharing of information. And I think that's when, like I'd already already been aware of the climate crisis, but I think if anything, it was a source of anxiety for me because it didn't seem to matter how blatant the problem was. Uh, we couldn't seem to get anyone to talk about it. You know, this it's, it's great that now we're in 2019 and uh, the environment is on a lot of people's lips, but in 2016, it felt like it was the fifth or sixth or eighth issue on mm -hmm. any given person's list. Um, and so it was hard to face the challenge of the climate crisis because no one even seemed to think it was a crisis. Um, and but I had seen uh, I'd been following a lot of Al Gore's uh, work with uh, An Inconvenient Truth and his um, climate reality project. And I realized that, you know, all political questions seemed secondary to the environment to me because if we have environmental collapse then it really doesn't matter about you know the rights of a certain marginalized group or uncorrupting our politics if if we don't have a planet to live on then all these imaginary things like politics and and class and stuff they all go away because we don't have anywhere to live um yeah I, one of the challenges today is just for people who are politically active to how to prioritize, how to decide what to work on. Because if you go online and look at any news site, it's overwhelming sometimes. There's climate issues, there's foreign policy issues, there's political corruption, there's Trump's crazy tweets. And it's really a question of how best to allocate your resources. And like you, I think that climate change is one of the biggest ones I think that the fixing our political system is interrelated in the sense that if we can improve our political system, we have a better chance of fixing climate Certainly. change. But, but yeah. I also agree with you, and it's uncomfortable to say sometimes, but as you said, some of these other issues that people are focusing on regarding you know, the treatment of a certain class of individuals, while it's, you know, it's frustrating and difficult, if we don't solve these big problems, those aren't going to seem very important at all anymore. 
we have to take care of the fundamental things first. And so in your role as a congressional liaison for Citizens Climate Lobby, what does that entail? How did you get into that position? And what has it been like, you know, working with your congressional office? Uh, so the Citizens Climate Lobby, the the ultimate goal of it, in the United States at least, is to have a direct liaison relationship with every single congressperson. And so um, there are CCL members, I think, currently liaising with at least, I think, close to 500 of the various congresspeople, senators and uh, representatives. And when I joined um, the chapter here in Los Angeles, they needed someone to be a liaison to my representative, Karen Bass. And um, and so I, I stepped into the role. I was excited about the idea of actually getting to meet my representative. I've never, I had never met a representative before. You know, the political class seems so far removed from us when all you ever do is see them on television. And... So I got to, you know, set up meetings to meet directly with uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's a fantastic Congresswoman. I'm I'm glad to be her liaison. I'm glad to support her in elections. And when we uh, when I initially stepped into the role, um, she was aware of Citizens Climate Lobby, but because we hadn't had a direct liaison relationship with her that had been stable. Um, she was, you know, she was like, oh, yes, I see you there. But that was about as far as the relationship went. But <laughs> through meeting up with her at town hall events, she's very good about having lots of town hall events. And through meeting with her staff directly in her office, I was able to start cultivating a relationship where I could bring her information about Citizens Climate Lobby, as well as the pressing need for immediate action on climate change. And thankfully, uh, Karen Bass is concerned with climate change, specifically how it relates to uh, public health and how it uh, disproportionately affects communities of color and low-income communities. And I think through those lenses, we were able to build um, a really respectful and exciting relationship to where now as we are pushing forward legislation in this new Congress, we're expecting uh, Congresswoman Bass to co-sponsor the bill that CCL is now uh, boostering, the EICDA. So can you tell us more about Citizens Climate Lobby's legislative proposal? Because climate change can seem like an overwhelming problem, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of the various potential solutions. So what is Citizen Climate Lobby's solution and the legislation that they're trying to move forward this session? So Citizens Climate Lobby has been based pretty much entirely around pushing for a national carbon fee. Uh, right now, uh, carbon producing pollutants like oil and gas and coal they are subsidized by the government. Um, they are made cheaper so that people can afford energy um, and can afford to put gas in their cars. So these fossil fuels are actually much more expensive to extract and process and get to the consumer uh, than we would know. And unfortunately, because the government is subsidizing it, 
we are not feeling the true costs of these fossil fuels, not just monetarily, but also their impact on the environment. It's not factored in at all. So when an, a gas line explodes or when a p- oil pipeline ruptures and spills oil over the place, that cost of that cleanup is not put back into the cost of that fuel. And so the idea is if we can levy a increasing carbon fee on these pollutants that we can help adjust and push people towards calling for cleaner energy, for um, better energy, for you know the environment that we will really need. And so now, the- sure one of the biggest pushbacks or concerns that people raise when they hear the phrase fee or carbon fee is, well, I don't want to pay any more money than I'm already paying. So what is the uh, response to that? How does Citizens Climate Lobby address that concern? Ah, so the the fee itself will be returned to citizens as a dividend. So instead of this being a carbon tax where the government levies money and then takes that money and then spends it on something, a carbon fee and dividend scheme would be so that there's a fee levied on oil wells and coal mines, and that that money is then directly dispersed evenly to all American households. We essentially are all getting a dividend for the natural resources that are being extracted from the United States. And so that's the the plan around the carbon fee and dividend there is that while the fees are being assessed at oil wells and coal mines, and so the producers will necessarily be passing on those costs to the consumer. The consumers will now be receiving checks that can help defray that cost. And it's estimated that checks will start at something like $200 a month and slowly increase over time as the fees increase over time. And so well, that dividend part's a lot more appealing than the fee. I think that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that makes some policy proposal a lot more viable. Um, right. And so that's let me the- ask. Oh, go ahead. So the and the goal of it there is that in general there are definitely certain factions within American conservative thinking that do not like any new taxes at all, and they don't like the idea of growing government. Um, so the idea of turning it from a tax into a fee with a dividend is that it's revenue neutral, that we're not putting any sort of pinch on people, but we're also not growing government when we do it, and the hope is that you know, people will be receiving these checks. And while their energy costs will be going up, there will then be uh, national, uh, nationally available information about how they can make their check stretch by opting into more fuel efficient vehicles, opting into weatherization for their homes, opting into more energy efficient appliances and that sort of thing. So it sounds like a well thought out proposal and the major idea behind it seems to be paying the actual cost of you know the fossil fuels that we're using and then helping people make better choices both environmentally and financially um, in terms of their energy consumption mm-hmm. I'm curious what's the level of bipartisan support for this initiative so far because as you said some conservative thinkers are opposed to any sort of you know fee or tax or expansion of government have any Republicans been willing to sign on to this legislation? 
So the legislation got introduced right at the end of the last Congress. It came strongly out of the Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a uh, organization within the House of Representatives started by Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello and Democratic Congressman Ted Deutsch. The goal of it was to essentially give Republicans a way to start learning about the climate crisis that allowed them to slowly walk away from the Republican Party line that climate change is a hoax. Since climate change is most certainly not a hoax, I would want to put that to bed. The science is (laughs) utterly conclusive. Climate change is happening. Human beings are responsible. It's happening incredibly fast. We need to act fast. So Carbello and Deutsch are both from Florida, which is the American state which will be most affected by climate change and most immediately affected by climate change. They started the Climate Solutions Caucus as a way to get Congress people together to hear from scientists, hear from people in the industry to know about what we need to do to try and fight uh, climate change. So Curbelo has always been on board. And when they designed the Climate Solutions Caucus, it was designed as a uh, equal membership caucus. So a for a Democrat to join, they had to find a Republican to join with them as like a partner. Yeah, Before I've heard the, people in Congress refer to that as the Noah's Ark model of getting exactly. co for legislation. Yeah, two by two. And uh, so right before the election, I believe the membership was up to about 90 people. So that's like uh, 45 from each party. Uh, then the 2018 midterms happened. A lot of the Republicans who were in the party lost. And initially there was a fear that that meant a carbon fee and dividend was dead and that actually that climate change legislation was dead because there were some in the political sphere who thought, oh, well, this is proof that if you're a Republican and you try and go soft on climate change, you'll get voted out of office. But thankfully, during the lame duck Congress, they finally introduced the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, EICDA, or we're calling it ICDA. And while, like all lame duck bills, it did not get passed, the expectations that it will be reintroduced in this new Congress, and that the hope is that it will be able to garner some support from the Republicans who are still members of the Climate Solutions Caucus, as well as hopefully some Republicans who are beginning to feel the pressure from their base to do something about climate change. I think uh, I was seeing the other day that there was a Reuters poll that showed it's closing in on 80% of the American population believes in climate change and wants something to happen. And you don't get to 80% without a large chunk of Republicans believing it's real too. So there's only a matter of time before the Republican base starts rebelling against this head in the sand uh, approach that the Republican Party is taking. That's true. And the 45 or 40 members from each party who co-sponsored last session that's a, an achievement in the current political climate. There aren't many significant pieces of legislation that have that level of bipartisan support. Um, it's worth noting that Ted Deutsch, who you mentioned, is also one of the leaders in the fight for an amendment to get big money out of politics. And that movement has similar levels of polling and public support, but doesn't yet have as much support in Congress 
um, among Republicans. So it sounds like CCL is off to a strong start and hopefully they can build on that progress in the next session um, or this session rather. Mm -hmm. I'm curious more specifically about your work with Representative Bass on the issue because you said that she was aware of Citizens Climate Lobby initially, but that it took some meetings and some efforts um, to build that relationship. Can you, for people who are interested in learning more about how to persuade your elected official to sign on to a bill or support legislation, what were your biggest takeaways from how that process worked and how you know other other people working on other issues can get their elected officials to support uh, policies that they believe in? Sure. I, I think one of the key components of CCL's success, Citizens Climate Lobby's success, is that we are considered a very friendly, patient, and positive, respectful organization. Um, Basically I, the Mr. Rogers of political groups, it sounds like. Ex- exactly. <laughs> I, I fully support um, political action that is more aggressive, more in your face, but the Citizens Climate Lobby's approach is always to be respectful and encouraging and patient, especially considering that we are trying to build relationships with all Congress people, not just ones who are friendly towards climate change. And so, uh, for example, twice a year, Citizens Climate Lobby has big, has big pushes in Washington, D.C., to meet with a bunch of Congress people all at once. We do like a lobby day in June and an education day in November where we get as many members as we can to fly to Washington, D.C. to meet with as many Congress people as possible. And we are always getting feedback even from uh, Congress people who are hostile towards climate change that the fact that we are respectful and patient and um, encouraging is something that they really appreciate. They never dread meeting with the citizens climate lobby. You know, we're not the, uh, the screaming, uh, and, you know, cussing out senators types. No. So I think that goes a long way. Uh, you know, we, we live in a society where the political class has, a, a significant amount of power and they can just ignore you as evidenced by, uh, my home states, senators, Mitch McConnell doesn't even have an answering service for his phone. Like you can't talk to Mitch McConnell uh, unless you're a donor. But when, <laughs> you know, but there are, there are Congress people that you can get in touch with. And once you have, you know, once you have a moment to say something to them, uh, you have to think about if, if you are going to yell at them, your chance of getting to talk to them a second time is very low. But if you are, you know, respectful and um, positive and encouraging, instead of shaming from one direction, but trying to encourage them to go in another direction, that seems to be the source of uh, CCL success. So when it came to Congresswoman Karen Bass, uh, like she, she knew that we were going to be a positive, cheerful group when she met with us. And so part of it was just bringing in the information about what our bill would do and kind of processing through all of her questions. Uh, Congresswoman Bass is a very critical thinker. She, um, you know, she had a lot of really good questions, a lot of really tough questions. Um, she had a lot of concern about how 
for example, this legislation would the the side effects of a legislation like this on lower income communities. Her criticisms that a lot of times big um, schemes like a, like a national carbon fee and dividend sound good on paper, but end up costing the poorest Americans more, since being poor is more expensive than being rich in America. So it sounds like being respectful and polite, even when you may disagree, and being well prepared to address the concerns that any representative or their staffer will bring up are key to CCL's success. Um, Was there any nuts and bolts tips in terms of just getting a meeting with Representative Bass in the first place? Because in my experience, some offices are very receptive to constituents and uh, others, it's, you know, it seems like you're trying to, uh, I don't know, you know, climb Everest to get a meeting with the elected official. Um, how did you, how are you able to set up, it sounds like multiple meetings with Representative Bass? Yeah. So our, our first interaction was at a town hall, a public town hall that she had. So I, first of all, I recommend that everyone, regardless of what you are trying to accomplish, or even if you're not trying to accomplish anything, I highly recommend everyone attend town halls that their representatives give. Uh, obviously, not all representatives do, but a majority of them do. They're encouraged to do so. Uh, if your representative doesn't, join an organization that is calling for them to do a town hall. You know, they are your employee, so they should be answerable to you. So we went to some town halls that she was having that were not directly related to climate change. But uh, at the end of the town hall, uh, as is common, she had a question and answer section. I got up and asked a question about whether she would support a, a carbon fee and dividend plan. Her response is that she didn't know a lot about the plan, but would be interested to know more. And so from that, I got to meet with her uh, staff lead here in Los Angeles. And that's how I started building the relationship with her Her home office chief of staff. You know, every every representative or congressperson has essentially two offices, the one in their home state and their one in Washington DC. And so just as just as important as the congressperson is their staff. Because a lot of times the congressperson is partially a a figurehead for an entire office, you know, of of people who are doing research, writing legislation, um, and attending uh, events and that sort of thing. So even if you can't meet directly with your congressperson, if you can meet with a, a chief of staff or somebody who is their primary advisor on a given subject that you're trying to um, encourage them on, like uh, she has a an energy and environment um, ad, you know advisor within her staff, meeting with them is just about as important as meeting with Congresswoman Bass herself, because they have her ear directly. She trusts them. So if they trust you, then by one degree, she trusts you. I'd echo that and doubly emphasize that persistence pays off. Sometimes it's going to take time. Um, In the case, you and I met with Representative Ted Liu about uh, the Restored Democracy Amendment proposal, and that took a long time to set up And it also involved me going to a town hall and asking him a question. And that was, I think, a key in getting on the agenda and getting some time in front of him. 
But persistence is key. And as you said, a lot of the time you're going to be meeting with a staffer, but that staffer has the representative's ear and will be briefing them. Because frankly, representing 700,000 people may be too many people for one person to represent and keep track of, even for a full staff to keep track of sometimes, I think. Right. Um, and I think also the important thing is to value the time that you have. You know, pre- very much it's important to prepare when you do get a meeting, even if the meeting is with a staffer, because these people are busy. Yeah, they have 700,000 people to represent. They have organizations and business leaders and religious leaders that they're representing. Plus, when you're a congressperson, you are ping-ponging back and forth between your home state and Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know, they they are your representative. You are entitled to some amount of their time, but don't waste their time. You don't gain anything by showing up unprepared, and you better be you know, well-versed in the thing you want to talk to them about because they will want to ask you questions. I think one of the most revelatory things that Karen Bass ever said to me in a meeting is, you know, politicians do not know everything. In fact, they know very little usually. (laughs) A lot of politicians, I mean, you have to remember, a lot of politicians, uh, some of them were planning on being politicians like from the jump. That's what they wanted to do. And so they got political science degrees, they maybe went to law school or something, and then they went into politics. And so it's silly for me as an environmental activist to expect a law school graduate who's focused on being a politician their whole life to know a lot about the environmental movement or to know about the technologies that have come about or to know about all the research and that sort of thing. You know, they, they're they have their own ignorances and blind spots as anyone does. So when you get to meet with a politician or meet with a staffer, it's important to remember that they don't know a lot about you know any specific thing unrelated to their job or whatever it was they were doing before they got into politics. Uh, Karen Bass was uh, a nurse and then she became like a, a leader in the nurses union and then she became a politician. So she knows a lot about healthcare, for example, but doesn't know a whole lot about the you know environmental environmental sciences and that sort of thing. So, and and that's fine. I you know you have to be willing to accept that politicians don't know a whole lot. And sort of the the purpose of lobbying, when you take away all the gross money bribery part. The idea of a lobbyist is just you are someone who knows more than a politician and you are trying to tell them what they don't know. Yeah, a lot and of unfortunately these, Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say a lot of these members they really do rely on outside expertise on issues from, you know, professors, people activists, uh, scientists, outside experts. And so if you can become one of those liaisons to the office that they have a relationship with and trust and can answer their questions and are knowledgeable, then I think you really can influence their decision-making. And as you said, it's unfair to expect members of Congress to know everything about everything because there's just so much information and so many issues. Right. And also, you know, in our current political climate, you have to realize also that there are competing interests with you and some of those competing interests have a lot of money. 
And so, you know, we we already have several politicians who have been bribed to think one way, and they only think that way because the money has made them think that way. It's, you know, they they are ignorant of the truth, and now the money has made them, given them a reason to be ignorant. And so when meeting with a politician, it's important to know that you very well may know a lot more about whatever the thing that has passionately driven you to their office door than they do. But you can't come in with an air of superiority because a politician is one of the most politically powerful, you know, they're, they're the political power class. So if you go in acting like, oh, I know so much more than you, well, they can just dismiss you and get away with it because they're so powerful. So I really think that coming as a respectful, informed, encouraging individual can go a long way to getting them to pay you attention. And you really just need that attention so you can put the bug in their ear that they can then start mulling over this tidbit of information that maybe they didn't previously have. Yeah, most uh, members of Congress, they have a few areas of expertise, and then they rely on others for the other issues. And on the amendment to get money out of politics issue, um, Jamie Raskin, for example, is a you know is a constitutional law scholar who is passionate about campaign finance reform. And so when I met with him, he's an absolute expert. He can read an amendment proposal in thirty seconds or a minute and tell you exactly what it does and the concerns and consequences. Um, whereas others are new to the issue. And you have to be respectful and appreciate that and walk them through it more. But the important thing is, as you said, to be respectful and polite and don't have an air of superiority just because you may happen to know more about this uh, legislation than they do at the time. I'm curious, you know, because it sounds like you were pessimistic about our political system and you've talked about corruption, rightfully so, in my opinion. Has learning more about our political system and getting more involved made you more optimistic about you know our hopes for progress and meaningful change, or has it confirmed what you thought and made you even more pessimistic about how the sausage really gets made? Um, I mean, I will say that getting to meet with my representative and having her hear me out and um, really be interested in what I had to say that part gave me hope. It gives me hope to know that our representatives are answerable to us and that you know, people deserve to get to meet their representative. I mean, this is the person who is your avatar in the government. You know, Karen Bass is me when it comes to the House of Representatives. So what she does is speaking on my behalf. I think it's hard to say that I feel very optimistic in the age of Trump and the age of McConnellism, simply because we have more starkly than ever the realization that the political class is removed from us, that they can simply ignore us and run roughshod over the American people. And so that part does fill me with a lot of pessimism. I I do feel like we will get through this insane moment in Trump's America. But I worry that the political class is not actually learning anything from this. 
I, I worry as I see some of the national messaging around this new Democrat Congress, there's the divide going on in the Democrat Party between the young, more representative of America freshman class and the old, corrupt you know, members of the Democratic Party who've been there for ages and are immediately going back to their same old, same old political goals. I think there's a there's a real need to get money out of politics uh, because we we live in the most capitalist country that the world has ever known. And in a country where there is no limits on the amount of money you can exploit out of people, then the power will always rest with the money and the money will always seek more power for itself. And so it's hard to feel terribly hopeful in a country with a broken electoral system that is led by a class removed from the working class who are on the take from the capital class. But there are politicians like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like Ilhan Omar, that give me a lot of hope because they they speak about real working class values, real working class concerns. And we're getting to a point where I don't know how much longer the political class can ignore the worker and get away with it. So I hope that once we get past this Trump moment, that we can see real change where the rights and concerns of working families are put above the cares of a few billionaires. I'm glad that you pointed out that you think there are politicians who give you hope because I think a lot of people in the get big money out of politics world will say things like they're all corrupt or we need to get rid of all of them. And I feel like that's unfair because I do think there are a lot of good, decent members of Congress. I just don't think there are enough of them. And I agree. If we mobilize and when I say we, I mean activists, voters, and we simply elect more good people and we put more pressure on them to do good things. There, there's no reason that government can't be responsive to our concerns and to the middle class and lower class more so than the donor class. And so on the question of how much hope there is, I ultimately think it resides with us. And it's kind of a question for us to answer. How much are we willing to work to make our political system the way we want it to be. Well, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, there's there's basically, you know, sort of two ways you can get uh, big money out of politics, right? There's the going at it legally as 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 you're doing through getting a constitutional amendment, and I'm I'm really excited about what Citizens Takes Action is doing, and I'm a proud supporter uh, of the effort. And the other side is. There's a growing culture that uh, Bernie Sanders sort of started and was carried on through these midterms of politicians running on the promise of not taking uh, corporate money. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran without corporate money. Ilhan Omar went, ran without corporate money. I believe a dozen or so other successful Democratic bids ran on no corporate donations. And uh, even though I myself am a a progressive, I would fully support any conservatives who ran without corporate money, because I think that's the noblest way to be a representative of your people is to run on the people's donations. We see now this freshman class 
of Congress people, and so many of them do not have hanging over their heads these questions of, oh, well, they took so much money from the oil lobby, or they took so much money from Big Pharma. How can we trust them? You know, there are politically powerful folks who have big ties to money in certain industries, and then we see their voting record, and it's obvious that that money has tainted their voting record. So if there's anything, I would encourage people, the voters, to put pressure on politicians, especially new politicians, to run without big donor money, um, to create that sort of culture from the outside without having to legislate it, because that will likely be able to happen faster than getting a... uh, uh, an amendment passed is just start start really voting for and supporting politicians who are running on the promise of no uh, corporate donations. And if we elected enough of those politicians, then in turn, it would make it easier for an amendment and a whole host of other reforms that we need to pass. Exactly, exactly. I'm sure Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are already on board for voting in a amendment to stop to overturn Citizens United. They talk about it all the time. So, yeah, so while we're working on it uh, from this poli- from this uh, political legal angle, I think it's important to push for it in the, uh, in the political culture angle as well. Well, next time I'm in a Republican office, I'm going to use the quote you just gave where you said, I'm a progressive, but I would support a conservative who ran on his <laughs> and be like, look, this is a leading progressive activist. From from West Coast liberal haven, Los Angeles, who would get confused, who would vote for you. So there you go. Um, <laughs> before we wrap up, if there's someone out there who is politically interested, um, but maybe has never been active before, maybe is a little uncertain of what to do, intimidated by getting involved with a group or trying to meet with their elected official or their staff. What advice would you give for someone who's politically active, curious, but hasn't taken concrete steps to make it happen yet? Well, the good thing is we live in the age of the internet. So information is right at your fingertips. One of the big pieces of advice I would say is if you are, uh, if you're passionate about a specific topic or, or a, a general, or a general category of topics like the environment or like women's rights or African-American rights, immigration. If there's something that, you know, most pulls at your heartstrings, most gives you energy, and that energy could currently be negative. You could be like really upset. But as long as it's the thing that really drives you, there are organizations out there who need your human power and you can find them on the internet. I would just search for volunteer opportunities and whatever whatever it is that drives you. And then all you have to do is, you know, sign up, give them your email and find out when are they having meetings? What are they doing? And then just go to a meeting. Just hear what they have to say. They'll be happy that you came. We're always looking for, you know, all, I'm, I'm a member of about four or five different volunteer organizations that meet regularly, and we are always excited about new interest. And I'd say that's the easiest way to start getting involved is just start meeting with other people who feel passionately the way you do. That's how a lot of volunteers have told me they've found Citizens Take Action is they just, they realize big money in politics is a problem. They Google how to get big money out of politics. They find us, 
they sign up and then, you know, we give them resources they can use to advocate in their community. And you said you recommend reaching out to groups or going to a meeting and it doesn't always have to work out the first time. You can go to a few different groups or a few different meetings and see what seems like a good fit to you. But the important Certainly. thing is taking the step and taking the action. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there's a social component too. People will be grateful. And sometimes these groups hang out, have happy hours, go bowling. It, it's not all you know, work and reading about legislation. There's plenty of fun to be had as well. Certainly. And I think if anything, what we need to take right now, there's definitely a feeling of powerlessness, I, I feel, sweeping over a lot of people, given all the multitude of scandals coming out of the Trump administration. But I think if anything, instead of feeling powerless, feel that this is a lesson that our culture discouraged civic participation for such a long time, that now civic participation feels like an effort. But we've got to remember that, you know, you live in the United States of America, which is just a collective belief that is held by, you know, 300 million people. And you have to participate in that belief. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to wake up, go to work, come home and go to sleep. Like you are also part of a society and getting involved, participating, that doesn't have to be just a a lark. This is a, a lifetime's Uh, you know, a part of your lifetime is to be involved in what is going on in your community and your society. And you don't have to tackle something that's huge and national. Your neighborhood possibly has a neighborhood council, or your town has a little town council, or you have a city council that has public hearings. Like, find out what is going on in your city. Find out who your city councilmen are. Find out who your mayor is. Like there are lots of people who don't know who their elected officials are. And these people, they have control over what happens in your life. You know, you hear a lot of times people say, oh, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't pay attention to politics. Well, that's fine, but your boss does. (laughs) And (laughs) your, uh, you know, the police do. And all the people who can affect your life, your landlord does. Like there are people who have power over you who are paying a lot of attention to politics. So it doesn't benefit you to sit on the sidelines. No, there's a, I know he's a divisive figure these days, but there's a Ralph Nader quote that says, if you're not turned on to politics, politics will turn on you. And as you said, no, no matter, no matter what level you're interested in neighborhood, city, state, national issue, candidate campaign, there's a place for you in political activism And you'll be welcomed with open arms if you just take that first step. So thanks again for taking the time to join me today and for sharing your journey into activism. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. Uh, Remember to visit citizenstakeaction.org if you want to support the show or volunteer with Citizens Take Action. We'll be back next time for another episode.